Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, murder and mayhem in early modern Britain, with Blessing Adams, and her new book, Great and Horrible News. Blessing Adams, traded police work investigating today's crime in the Norfolk Constabulary for academia, tracing the lives and deaths of people in early modern Britain. She received her doctorate following research in early modern English law and literature at the University of East Anglia. Today we're going to be talking about Blessing's new book, which is Great and Horrible News, Murder and Mayhem in Early Modern Britain. Blessing, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi Neil, thanks so much for having me. So the book is looking at a a very specific time period, which is 1500 to 1700. So let's first of all talk about why... And then, I guess, outside of the world of criminal justice, what was going on in the country in those two centuries? Yes, I mean, um, why? It's it's more practical than exciting. The reasons that I went for this time period was it was simply that this is the uh, the period that I focused on during my PhD. So it's the one that I am most familiar with, um, working with the um, archival uh, and manuscript materials. So um, yes, it was definitely um, more for practical reasons in that respect, but. Nonetheless, it was an incredibly exciting and interesting period of history, and it covered an extraordinary uh, series of um, events. Um, you say it was a relatively short period of history, but 200 years can encompass quite a lot. It was uh, We had the, the rise and the fall of the houses of the Tudors and the Stuarts. We had humanism. We had the scientific revolution. We had the Enlightenment. You know, We had plagues. We had wars. There was so much going on. So um, something I focus on with my particular book is that although these enormous and, um, you know, significant events are happening during this period, I like to focus in on the individual everyday men and women living their lives through these events. So although these events are important, uh, I'm much more interested in sort of like the Joe blogs of the early modern period and what they were getting up to. So one year that isn't within that 200-year period is 1749, which is the year that the Bow Street Runners, which we tend to think of as a, a forerunner of the, uh, the modern police force, was first set up. So before that, how did organised criminal justice work, whether that's in, in a big city like London or a, 
a smaller city like Norwich. Yes, you're absolutely right. Who was the police before the police? <laughs> um, so yeah, there was uh, there was at that time sophisticated agencies whose job it was to investigate crime and to investigate murder and violence in the communities. And that was something that was done from the level of, you know, the, the everyday community. Everyday citizens were far more involved in law and order um, from the constables and the watchmen who would be patrolling the streets. These were volunteers just drafted from the everyday citizens in your town or village or your parish. Um, and then you would have people like the uh, the sheriffs and the magistrates who were much more sort of like supervisory and um, sort of like em- empowered by the crown to investigate crimes. And of course, you had the the coroner as well, whose duty it was to investigate all sudden, violent and suspicious deaths within their jurisdiction. And then, of course, you, you had barristers and you had judges in the courts if people found themselves within that particular part of the the legal system, then it was their job to sort of to prosecute the crimes and to sentence those that found guilty. So there was definitely agencies and the the machinery out there to investigate and prosecute crimes, although we didn't have, as we envision it today, the the modern version of the police force in the early modern period. And I want to talk about the um, 16th century version of a Netflix true crime documentary a lot of the research for this book is, you know, done through looking through like broadsides and things. And um, and there was pamphlets published and sold to the public throughout these two centuries. So tell us something about these. When did this sort of start? Who was buying these things? Who was reading these things? And I guess what was the sort of broader purpose of these beyond just titillation? Yes. So um, these sort of the, the true crime pamphlets. Um, and the broadside balance that you mentioned, these have pretty much been going since the uh, since the printing press was was first fired up. People want news. They want to know what's happening in their communities. So um, just to give you a bit of an overview. So the, the pamphlets, I guess, is what we would imagine would be sort of like the, the true crime magazines, I guess, of the day or, or, or the newspapers reporting on the latest killings or executions uh, and strange events happening. Um, and these were broadly bought by a wide range of people um that there was no real snobbery when it came to these sorts of things you would have people of the more affluent classes the more privileged classes who were perfectly happy to read these as well as those sort of like of the the, the more the street literature those sorts of people that just wanted their version of the penny dreadfuls i guess um the broadside ballads i think are quite interesting these were usually just one sheet of paper um and they were written in verse and they had absolutely enormous sort of gory woodcut illustrations and these were targeted at the less literate members of society uh, and the idea being that these would be posted up in um, inns or coffee houses and those amongst the clientele who could read would sing them out and then other people who couldn't read could nonetheless you know listen to the news hear the latest news although it was in song form and um, some of the uh, the music survives and it's quite hilarious just how jolly this music is um, I had a friend of mine who can read music, play it for me in an organ, and I thought, oh, this is quite cheerful. <laughs> I thought it would be a bit more, uh, a bit more solemn. So yes, they, they were read by uh, all stratas of society, and uh, the the idea was is that um, yes, they were sensational. They were quite exciting. Um, they were usually written to provoke outrage or fear in the readership. Um, but many of them, as well, I think, sought uh, to have a bit more of a, a moral purpose around them to instruct the readers on proper conduct, proper civic conduct, perhaps to sort of like shout out the importance of the, the traditional family unit or to warn the readers about the dangers of Catholicism. So they were meant to be instructive as well as entertaining. 
And to what extent does this sort of thing survive in terms of your research that you did both for your PhD and obviously for this book? Because obviously, again, the people that a lot of the people that would have been committing notorious crimes in these days would have been people that ordinarily history is not written about. And so to what extent, how does one go about researching this subject in that era? Yes, so um, to go to the, the first part of your question is, is the, the sorts of crimes um, that were being reported about and what survives today. So what survives is very little. These things were printed quite in, in large numbers but they were ephemeral. They were designed to be read and then discarded. Nobody was really saving these things, uh, much the way that nobody really saves the Metro. It's something that you pick up and you read and then you discard or you hand to you know, someone else. However, some have survived because there was the occasional um, person that would tuck one away in the bottom of a chest or um, they perhaps had an interest in a particular murder uh, and, and saved it for that purpose. So that there are there are a, a decent amount that have survived, but in the grand scheme of what was printed as what has survived today, it's unfortunately and quite depressingly quite little. And then, as you say, the sorts of crimes that were reported in these pamphlets, as you say, the more sensational ones. Most homicides in the early modern period, they weren't that sensational. They weren't that exciting. It was usually something along the lines of a barroom brawl or a mugging gone wrong or domestic homicide, um, you know, husbands murdering their wives. These sorts of things weren't reported particularly. They didn't sell broadside ballads or, or true crime pamphlets. So the sorts of crimes reported were the more sensational and salubrious ones. Um, the early moderns had, had a real appetite for reading stories of female killers. So narratives of female killers are hugely overrepresented in the surviving documents. Uh, and they're also particularly interested in reading about executions um, and about child murder and suicides. These things that were really sort of like hot issues of the day. People cared deeply about suicide. They thought it was a, a terrible moral travesty. And um, it was also um, quite a problem in the early modern period that a lot of children were being killed, um, children out of wedlock you know, baseborn bastard children, as they were called, were being um, killed in great numbers. So these are the things that were the, the outrage of the day and were reported on quite heavily. So we have to bear in mind that the crimes being reported in these true crime pamphlets don't necessarily represent the types of crimes that were actually happening in great numbers. And then going about how I go about researching these crimes, the true crime pamphlets and the broadside ballads are, for me, excellent sources they're easily accessible. Um, a, a lot of them are well preserved in places like the British Library um, and also on online databases. So they're, they're really easy for, for most researchers to access. But they're a really good starting point. So it's a good place for me to see what sorts of crimes people were interested in reading about and maybe finding one or two cases that I think this is really interesting and I'd like to follow this. And then that's where I then start to dig deeper and I start going into the legal archives and trying to trace these crimes through the court documents, the inquest documents, trying to hunt down and find a bit more information about what was really going on here. So I think the, um, the, the true crime pamphlets are absolutely wonderful sources for anybody interested in crime in this period. As you mentioned, in this 200-year period that you're researching, obviously a lot happens and the country changes in quite significant ways, not least, as you mentioned, the sort of beginnings of the rise of the scientific revolution. So to what extent does how society itself views 
crime change over this period of time as I guess the um the influence of the church starts to wane and the influence of Stein starts to starts to come in yes I think perhaps where this this can be um, perhaps more clearly seen is in the early modern attitudes to suicide so in the medieval period it was very much believed to be um, a, a religious a spiritual matter people who killed themselves were seemed to be doing a crime not so much against themselves but against God it was believed that people did not have the right to take their own life. That was God's domain. So it was very much a matter of the church and it was handled by the church. And this is an attitude that persisted well into the early modern period. However, it then started to be prosecuted by the secular courts. So um, it, was a, a fe- it was known as a felo de se, which means to commit a felony against yourself or self-murder. So the early modern courts treated suicides as self-murderers. And it was still believed to be very much a, a matter, a, a criminal matter as, and a spiritual matter. A lot of the wording in the, in the court documents and inquest documents uh, really emphasise the fact that this is a crime against God instigated by the devil. So there was a, a real sort of like superstitious belief that it was the intervention of, of the devil that caused people to kill themselves. However, as the early modern period progressed and we are getting closer to the 18th century, People are becoming more secularized in their views towards suicide and more skeptical about the spiritual aspects of the crime. So there's starting to be a greater understanding of the, the, the mental health causes and conditions of suicide. People like Robert Burton are starting to write about uh, melancholia and what they call sort of like the, the lunatic aspects of people who commit suicide. So as the time period goes on, Attitudes towards suicide are less religious and they become more secular. And then people are being prosecuted less and less. Well, I say people are being prosecuted. Obviously, people who commit suicide are dead. But nonetheless, they are held criminally responsible and their corpses are desecrated and denied Christian burial. So they are nonetheless being punished by the secular courts and the church. But as the period goes on and people get a greater understanding of the the mental health aspects of suicide, people are becoming more sympathetic as well as secular in their, their out, in their view of suicide and less and less people are being found guilty of failure to say and are being found as non-compassmentous suicides. So it's very much a, a very slow and gradual change, it, incredibly slow, but it's only at the very end of the period that I'm looking at that attitudes are starting to change. And just one more question in general, and then in the second half, we'll actually look at some of the examples in the book. But to what extent does the fact that you've worked yourself as a police officer affect how you approach the stories in this book and your research? Yes, I don't think it affects my research so much. I think the the, the research process is very much something that came out of my uh, my years of um, academic study. But I definitely think that it helped informed my my writing of the book and the way I approached sort of like the the sources that I was looking at. So when I was in the police, a lot of the things that I write about in the book are things that I have experienced myself, albeit in the modern age. So I have attended scenes of sudden and violent death. I've examined bodies and crime scenes. I've been to post-mortems. I've chased criminals through the streets. So as I'm reading about people experiencing these things in the historical record, I can't help but cast my, my mind back to the times that I've done these same things. Of course, I, I don't draw, you know, I don't, I don't 
assume that my experiences are the same as those in the only one period but it, it can help me sort of like perhaps I think maybe understand a little bit about what people were thinking and seeing but then on the other hand I think it was my experience in the police that sort of like helped me to dig deeper into um, some of these cases so one of the first cases I looked at and it was the case that inspired me to write the book was uh, the the case of Elizabeth Balance um, a young woman in Norwich who had tragically miscarried her child. She was uh, pregnant out of wedlock. And in this period, women who were pregnant out of wedlock were deemed to be morally corrupt and motivated um, by, their, by their social positions to murder their own children. So I was digging through the coroner's inquest records when I came across this case. And as I was reading it, I found all these depositions, these witness depositions that were going along with the coroner's inquest. And I thought, gosh, this is interesting. Why, why have they included all these witness depositions? And as I was reading through them, I thought, God, this feels like familiar territory. Because when you're in the police, you're trained that when you're interviewing witnesses and when you're interviewing suspects, you have certain evidential proofs in mind and defences. So if you're looking to prosecute somebody for a particular offence, um, you have in mind what you want to prove and then what they might argue later on as their defence. And you want to sort of like head those off at the pass. And as I was reading these deposition documents, I could see this is what the coroners were doing, because in this particular case, the coroners were acting as investigators. They were acting as detectives. And I thought, this isn't just a, an inquest into the tragic death of, uh, of a baby. This is a murder investigation or something very similar. This is a criminal investigation. And that's why I started digging into this case and getting more interested. And um, the deeper I dug and I started learning more of the, the laws surrounding um, stillbirths and miscarriages in the early modern period, I thought, gosh, this is, this is exciting. This is worth writing about. And that was really what gave me the idea for the book and to look into the other crimes or, or, or other sort of suspected crimes like this one. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Blessing Adams and we're talking about her new book, Great and Horrible News, Murder and Mayhem in Early Modern Britain. And Blessing, as I said, in the second half, I want to look more closely at some of the examples of crimes in the book that you cover. Before we do that, though, the very beginning of the book has an incredibly vivid scene of a butcher in jail in York. And um, you can carry on from there. Yes, it is quite gruesome. It is quite gory. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I hate to say it, but I did it on purpose because I wanted to shock people a little bit when they first started reading the, uh, read the book. So, yes, this is, uh, this is a butcher who had uh, recently joined up with a regiment in York. And he had been uh, thrown into um, prison for some small misdemeanor. And while he was in there, he committed suicide in quite a drastic fashion. He cut his stomach open and pulled his uh, intestines out and then proceeded to chop them into little pieces. And he remained alive for quite a few hours. And while he was alive, his death became, his protracted death became quite a spectacle. People were coming in great numbers to, to shuffle into his cell and view his body lying on the floor. And at one point, he picks himself up and drags himself into a chair, which was incredibly exciting for those who were watching. And um, I, I think it was one of those cases that I thought was just really illustrative of, of the morbid fascination that people in the early modern period had for true crime, not just reading about it, but if something like that was going on in town, people wanted to go over and look, they wanted to see what was happening and uh, word spread fast and people got there to have, have a look at what was going on. So I thought this, this is quite a, a shocking and also quite apt true crime case to open the book with. And obviously something else people wanted to see in great numbers was public executions, of which the first case in the book does end up with one of those. This is the uh, the murder in Milk Street, um, which is a great example of how an investigation into a murder would have been carried out in the days before there wasn't an, an official police force. So just, just give us a brief recap of what happened in this case. Yeah, so this was a case of two young apprentices um, who, were, who were working and living in Cheapside. Uh, they were friends and they were um, co-sleeping and one of them cut the other one with a knife. Um, he, he slashed his face and slashed his throat and it was, it was quite a, a gruesome slaying that lasted for, uh, I think it was half an hour it took him to kill his friend. Um, and then the, the killer fled into the night having also robbed the shop that they were sleeping in. So um, I think this case is a, is a really good example of what I talked about earlier, is the community getting involved in um, the pursuit of wanted felons. It was called the hue and cry, and everybody was expected to get involved. So although it might feel like to us, the modern readers, as we're reading about these citizen detectives running around Cheapside trying to hunt down a killer, to us modern readers, it might sound like interference, but to the early moderns, this was their civic duty. They were expected to do this, um, and they were doing it with the support of the coroner and uh, community leaders and the sheriff as well. So everybody was pitching in to capture this chap called Nathaniel Butler, who was the killer. Um, and then when he was uh, eventually captured and he was examined, pieces of evidence taken from the crime scene were sort of compared to, to his body to see if there was a match. An early modern version of the DNA comparison, maybe. And then um, he, was, he was put into Newgate. And I also thought what was quite interesting about this chapter and the treatment of Nathaniel Butler was how after his arrest and the news of the, the killing had become an enormous story in the community, not just the community, it became a national story. Nathaniel Butler started to become a bit of a famous figure himself. And the people who had him locked up in Newgate 
the mayor of London and uh, his prison ordinary, a guy called Ralph Yearwood, they worked hard to spin the story of Nathaniel Butler as a, a sinner redeemed by God. And he became a sympathetic figure as well as a famous figure. And I thought this feels very familiar to the modern reporting of big notorious murder cases where the victim fades into the background and they almost become a non-entity in the story of their own murder. And the whole focus of the community and of the nation is fixed on the killer. The killer then becomes a bit of a celebrity figure. So by the time Nathaniel Butler uh, was sent to his execution, it was an absolutely enormous affair. Uh, the upwards of 10,000, maybe even 15,000 people showing up to this particular execution, which took place in Cheapside, which is one of the, the which was the, I think, the, the widest thoroughfare in the city. You could pack an awful lot of people in there. There would have been people sitting on roofs, dangling out of windows, erecting platforms to get better looks. It would have been an absolutely enormous theatrical performance. Yeah, it's fascinating how the, as you said, I saw that sort of modern parallel in that how often the focus of the reporting, the papers and the TV coverage nowadays tends to, you know, focus on the luridness of the case and forgets that there is a, you know, a person that's been murdered and a family that are grieving. And what the focus seems to be in this case is is not that the lurid spectacle of it, but the saving of the murderer's soul, how, how visceral that was, how this was the thing that everybody was concerned about. That obviously becomes the case in, the, in, a, in another case that we're going to talk about in a few moments, uh, which I'm sure you can probably guess what that one is by me saying that. But um, yeah, the, the focus of the authorities is on this guy repenting so his soul can be saved. Yes, Christian narratives of redemption were really important to the early moderns. It was a way that they reconciled the idea that these terrible murders, they couldn't really get their heads around the idea that God was allowing these terrible murders to be committed. So the way that they would frame this would be that it wasn't God that allowed murder to happen. It was the devil. The devil seduced people into committing murders. And that was out of God's hands. It wasn't anything to do with God. God steps in when the justice system picks up the case. And it's God that um, allows murderers to be captured. It's God that causes them to confess. And it's God that will then receive them if they are penitent, if they regret their crimes, if they give a full confession. So it was really important for the authorities, the church and the state, to get confessions out of accused murderers. And the interesting thing was, is that you would think that the confession would be most important before the trial. If you get a confession before trial, then that's it, you're sorted. You, you, you can get your conviction, you can get your sentencing done. But a lot of the time, they were more interested in getting confessions after trial, because it was these post-trial confessions where they could really dig into the details of the crime. And they could really sort of like whip up the condemned men and women into, um, you know, re really expressing their, their sorrow. How, yes, I was seduced by the devil, but now I've turned to God and I, I await him in the afterlife. And then the execution is legitimized. The sentencing is legitimized. And people can go on believing, ah, yes, God has triumphed over evil. So it, it was a really important thing for the early moderns to, um, to see this sort of like process happen in the criminal justice system. I wanted to talk about uh, a couple of cases that show how women were treated by the uh, by the system back then. Um, obviously, you've already mentioned Elizabeth Ballans, and that is that is one of them. But let's having now talked about the um, the fight for redemption of the murderer's soul, let's um, leap straight to the story of Margaret Vincent and her 
desire to save the souls of our own children. This is a really sad case. So this is um, the, the story of Margaret Vincent, who was an incredibly respected member of her community. She was very much of the middle classes. Um, she was a mother to two young boys, or oh, sorry, three young boys. She had an infant baby as well. And she was a devoted mother and what you would have called the perfect model of womanhood in the early modern period. And then at some point, she started to become involved with Catholic preachers. And she converted to Catholicism at a time when it was, no, it wasn't acceptable. Uh, it, was, it was a dangerous thing to do, but it was something that she was very wedded to. And she started to become obsessed with the notion that if her young children were raised in the Protestant faith, then they would be condemned to hell. So she tried to convince her husband to convert to Catholicism. She tried to convince him to allow her to raise her kids in the Catholic faith. It was absolutely forbidden. So what she did was she felt, well, the only merciful thing I can do is I need to kill my children before their souls are contaminated beyond redemption. And that's exactly what she did. Um, she didn't kill all of her children, but she killed two of her young boys. And this was very much, in her mind, I believe, a, a merciful act. This was an altruistic killing. But of course, it's very difficult for us, and of course for the early moderns, to read about something like this, about a devoted, loving mother murdering her two children in such a brutal way. She strangled them. It's a very much a, a hands-on, personal type of slaying. And then, yes, and then she uh, attempted to kill herself afterwards, but was unsuccessful. And after her arrest... The ordinaries and, and the community were desperate for her to give a confession to admit her wrongdoing. And she held out until the very end. She would not admit that she had done wrong. But at the very end, she, she did then decide, oh, my God, what have I done? And um, she had to face up to the fact that she had murdered her own children. It's an incredibly tragic and sad case. And yes, of course, she was executed for those crimes. There, there was no leniency, even though she believed she was doing a merciful act. And one more then. So Elizabeth Ballans, who you've you've already mentioned and another woman that gets mentioned in the in the same chapter called Anne Green these are two young poor women who are taken into service at houses and are impregnated by somebody at that house somebody of you know a higher social status thrown out and are basically going to give birth to illegitimate children which is going to be the ruin of them whatever way you look at it in this society and in both cases, they miscarry or, you know, the baby is stillborn. And at this time, this is potentially seen as an infanticide. Did this woman who is in a desperate situation do something to, to bring harm to the baby? And the reason I'm talking about both cases is because they're different sides of an act of law, which is the Infanticide Act of 1624. So what is the significance of that? Okay, so the 1624 Infanticide Act was specifically written to target unmarried women who had miscarried their babies. And it was one of those incredible quirks of English law where guilt was assumed and innocence had to be proved, which is the very opposite of, of any other law in, in, in English common law. You're innocent until proven guilty. And what was so interesting, especially about um, Anne Green and her particular case, so in the, uh, in the Infanticide Act, it says that any woman uh, who has um, uh, miscarried or, or had a stillbirth, if she attempted to conceal the body of her child or the remains or to conceal her pregnancy, she was deemed to be guilty. Absolutely no flexibility at all. 
So with the, the sad case of Anne Green, she miscarried very early into her pregnancy. A midwife and witnesses said that the, the miscarriage was not really a, a formed infant at all. They couldn't really tell what it was. And she had done this in a, a toilet and then attempted to cover, cover it with some rubbish and some leaves. And it was that act of covering it, covering her miscarriage with the leaves that fell foul of the 1624 Infanticide Act. Anne Green was arrested on the spot and found guilty of infanticide, even though during the inquest and during the court case, people came forward, professional witnesses such as midwives came forward and said this was a miscarriage. It was not an infanticide. Because of the wording of the 1624 Infanticide Act, she was found guilty. She was executed. And then there's an absolutely extraordinary sort of uh, twist in this tale, whereby her body is given to anatomists to um, dissect. And just as they're about to make the incision, she sort of rattles a breath in her, in her chest. And they discover that she's still alive. Uh, and they managed to revive her. And it was only by this incredible twist that she was then exonerated. It was believed that, oh, well, God wouldn't have allowed her to live if she was guilty. So she was probably innocent then. And she was allowed to live her life with this notorious millstone around her neck. But yes, it, it just goes to show the absolute harshness of this law. And as I'm reading and researching about this particular piece of legislation, I just think to myself, what justice is there in, in a particular law like this? There is none. It's purely designed, I believe, to punish women for their moral crimes of being pregnant out of wedlock and it was applied in an incredibly harsh way. So yes, Anne Green, she fell on the, uh, the, the side of this legislation that saw her being executed. Elizabeth Balance uh, was treated a bit more sympathetically by the coroners, even though fear and anger about infanticide was still a really hot issue in her day. Luckily, she wasn't prosecuted under this particular piece of legislation. So I've been talking to Blessing Adams. We've been talking about her book, Great and Horrible News, Murder and Mayhem in Early Modern Britain which is out in the UK from William Collins. Blessing, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.